Well, thank you so much for serving us so well. Uh, the last uh, evening and this morning, uh, the worship team always has to do double duty, and uh, we appreciate their servants' hearts and uh, just a great group of songs for us. And uh, that last song that they just sang for us um, is a perfect lead-in to today's message. And, and those of you who are familiar with uh, classic Christmas music may have noticed that uh, the lyrics of that song, that contemporary song by Chris Tomlin, r- resemble uh, in some way uh, the classic uh, masterpiece, choral masterpiece that we know as Handel's Messiah. And uh, every Christmas, as you know, in churches and concert halls around the world, millions of people find comfort, they find hope uh, in the biblical message that is communicated in what has become the most widely performed piece of music in human history. And uh, I'm not a, a music aficionado, my wife and Kids kind of got all that uh, talent in our family. But uh, I found it interesting just uh, doing a little background study and research on Handel's Messiah is what musicians call an oratorio, which means an oratory or teaching by music. And these choral pieces, these oratorios, were originally designed to teach people the stories and the doctrines of the Bible. It was uh, essentially a sermon uh, put to music. And uh, oratorios became useful and popular back in the day when Bibles were rare and expensive and few could afford them. And of those who could afford them, few were sufficiently educated to read them. And so to overcome these obstacles, uh, composers set to music the great stories and and truths of Scripture so that men and women of any age could could learn the Word of God. And uh, in fact, when the premiere of Uh, Handel's first oratorio was finished, Uh, a friend approached Handel to compliment him, and uh, he said this, I must congratulate you upon such a beautiful piece of entertainment. You didn't say that to Handel. Handel said, entertainment? That was not written for entertainment. It was written for education. And it was not Handel's desire to amuse the masses with his music. Instead, he wanted to transform society by teaching them the scriptures to those who could listen and and learn. And that's why Handel never conducted his oratorios for a fee. He only took donations because he felt like he was communicating the word of God, which shouldn't have a price placed on it. Well, there's a powerful story behind the writing of the Messiah, his most well-known piece. And I'm indebted to a pastor named Tyler Scarlett in Virginia who uh, wrote a a little article uh, entitled, The Story Behind the Carol Handles Messiah. And this is how it goes. As a result of uh, his financial failures and physical ailments, in 1741, Handel was financially broke and emotionally broken. One night amidst his despair, he wandered the lonely streets of London, and it was almost dawn when he returned to his shabby room where he found a thick envelope on the table. It was from a man named Charles Jennings who compiled the texts for his compositions. Examining the pages, Handel found them covered with texts of scripture about the birth, the death, and the return of Jesus Christ. He wearily just tossed them aside and crawled into bed, but he couldn't sleep. The words he had read kept resonating in his heart and his mind. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born. Glory to God in the highest. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Handel was inspired, and he got up and went to his piano and began to write, and the music just flowed beautifully and majestically from his heart, and he feverishly worked night and day for three weeks without stopping to eat or to sleep. He refused to see anyone, and until at last, on the very day that the work was finished, his assistant managed to gain entrance to his room, and he said the great composer was at his piano, sheets of music strewn around him, and he was sobbing uncontrollably. And when the assistant asked what was wrong, Handel held up the score to the Hallelujah Chorus, which, of course, is the most well-known movement of the piece, and he said this, quote, I do believe I have seen all of heaven before me, and the great God himself, whether I was in the body or out of my body, when I wrote it, I know not. Well, this would not be the last time someone was moved by this extraordinary piece of music, and the result of Handel's labor is a dramatic three-part commentary on the prophecy and fulfillment of God's plan of redemption through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as great as that musical piece is and remains today, over 1,600 years before Handel ever composed the Messiah, the Apostle Paul composed a letter to the church in Philippi that contains one of the greatest descriptions of God's plan of redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, in the entire Bible. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning with me to Philippians chapter 2. And those of you that regularly come to Lakeside, you know that uh, we've been studying through this letter, and in the providence of God, we've come to this text at a perfect time, at Christmas time. And uh, I purposely left this text, put it off for a week, so that we could meditate on it this morning, because this is what some commentators consider the crowning Christological text in all of Paul's writings, and possibly all of Scripture. Let's read it together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the entire Christmas story in a nutshell which we are going to see is much more than a a baby being born in a stable or a star in the sky or angels singing or shepherds and wise men. I mean, if that's all we focused on during the holidays, then frankly, the story of, of, of Jesus is just another sappy, sentimental story like Charlie Brown's Christmas or The Grinch Who Stole Christmas or Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. You see, the real message of Christmas goes way beyond what we typically think of at this time of year. And the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ was only the beginning. 
of God's great plan to save mankind from their sin. And in order for us to to understand and appreciate the significance of of Christ's birth at Christmas time, we need to view it as just one piece or movement of this great drama, this great commentary of redemption. And Christ's birth is connected to both his death and resurrection, but also his return. I mean, it would be like watching the first act of a three-act play. If, if this was a three-act drama and you only got to watch the first act, you would have missed out on a lot of the story. It would be like going to see Rogue One without seeing any of the other Star Wars movies. Can you imagine what would happen? You'd walk out of there going, what was that all about? And that was pretty much what I did because I'm not much into that sci-fi genre and you know I'm more of a realist and I like sports movies, real life, true to stories, they make me cry you know, when they score the winning goal or touchdown or whatever, uh, tears come to my eyes. But uh, so I went this week with my family to, to see Rogue One and I put my hoodie up and in between naps, I would peek out like a Sith Lord down at my kids to <laughs> kind of make them laugh. And, and uh, but they had to explain the whole story to me. I was like, well, what? Oh, yeah, dad, don't you understand? It's like the prequel to the sequel of the prequel. And I'm like, whoa, that's hurting my head to think about it. But, but it, the point is there's this Star Wars saga there's this entire story that you need to understand and appreciate. In the same way, there is a saga of salvation, which unfolds in, in three acts or three scenes, if you will. And the first scene is set in a humble manger in Bethlehem. And the second scene is set on a skull-shaped hill in Jerusalem. And the third scene is set in the glorious throne rooms of heaven. And these magnificent verses, which we have before us this morning, tell the whole story of how God's Son left the glories of heaven and came to earth in the form of a man to pay the penalty for for our sin by dying in our place on a cross and how God raised him from the dead and restored him to his rightful place in heaven. Now there's way too much in this passage for us to consider all of it this morning, but but the first thing I think we need to understand about this passage is that Paul didn't include this, this sparkling Christological gem in his letter to the Philippian believers to, to simply instruct them in theology. In fact, this was to practically help them get along with one another. I mean, this rich theology about the person and work of Jesus Christ was really almost an incidental illustration of a command that he gave in verses 3 and 4 to be selfless and humble. And as we've been learning, uh, selfish pride was disrupting some of the relationships within the church and it was threatening the unity of the church. And so that's why Paul in chapter 1, verse 27, was exhorting them to, to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then uh, in chapter 2, verse 2, he asked them to make his joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in one spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so in order to to press home his exhortation to, to humbly and selflessly serve one another, Paul provided this unforgettable example of selfless humility. 
What is the ultimate example of humility? It's the condescension and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, this passage at first glance might appear very complicated, and so I just want to make it really simple this morning. And I think you could summarize this this profound passage in, in three simple words. We see, first of all, a cradle. Secondly, we see a cross. And thirdly, we see a crown. And as we're going to, as I want to point out to you as we go through this text, all three of these things, the the cradle and the cross and the crown, are included or implied in the narratives of the nativity found in the Gospels that we've been reading over the past month. And so let's take a closer look at Paul's majestic description here of how the Son of God willingly left his throne in heaven to become a man like us and die in our place in order to save us from our sin and to serve as a model for us to follow as we live our lives here on this earth. Let's look first of all at the cradle or what we could call the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. Notice verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality a thing to be grasped. We need to understand that Jesus didn't come into existence in a manger in Bethlehem. He already existed in the form of God. Again, this is a reference to Jesus' pre-existent state, pre-incarnate state, as the second person of the Trinity in eternity past. The word form there, he existed in the form of God. The original Greek there means an outward manifestation of an inward reality. In other words, Jesus didn't merely resemble God, he actually was God. And Jesus has always been and will always be completely coexistent, co-eternal, and co-equal with the Father. We see this point in this truth throughout the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In Colossians chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of Christ, Paul says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And then the writer of Hebrews begins his letter to the Jews with just profound language. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Speaking of Christ, he says he is the radiance of his glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And so we see, again, here the deity of Jesus Christ. But notice, uh, back in Philippians, it says, Paul went on to say that while he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Even though Jesus had always been God, he didn't cling to or hold on to that position or insist on his rights and his privileges. He could have refused to leave the glory and majesty that he enjoyed in heaven, but instead he willingly renounced 
his rights, his privileges as God. Uh, Stated in another way, he temporarily relinquished or laid aside his position in heaven, but again, it didn't affect his person. This was all about his position, not his person. And while Jesus was here on earth, he never insisted, he never demanded to be treated with the honor and the glory that were rightfully his. While he was here on earth, he never used his divine powers or prerogatives for his own personal advantage. He could have turned stones into bread. He could have jumped off the temple without getting hurt. He could have called a a legion of angels to keep him from uh, being arrested and, and killed. But instead, Jesus gave up the independent use and display of his divine power and glory. He limited how and when he visibly manifested his splendor and majesty according to the will of the Father. It was only when the Father wanted him to do that. The operative phrase here in this text, probably the most important phrase, the one that has caused theologians uh, the most angst as it, when it comes to interpreting this passage is the next phrase in verse 7. It says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with, a thing, uh, with God a thing to be grasped, but what was it say? Emptied himself. Here we have the, the Greek word where we get the, the term kenosis, which is often the title that is placed on this text. It's, it's the kenosis passage. And, and again, we need to be very careful when interpreting this word kenosis, this emptying of himself, uh, we don't ever want to make it mean that Jesus was ever not fully God. Jesus never stopped being God when he became a man. It's impossible for Jesus to give up his deity. And so any explanation of this phrase, the, the emptied himself, uh, that diminishes Jesus' deity is heretical. As one commentator referred to it as incarnation by divine suicide. When Jesus became a man, he didn't commit divine suicide. He he didn't uh, die to his deity, if you will. What what, what did he do? Well, then, again, we've already stated it, but Jesus emptied himself of his divine rights and privileges, but not his divine attributes. Not for one moment during his life on earth did Jesus ever not possess all the attributes of God. He subjected himself to human limitations, but he remained omnipotent, he remained omniscient, and he remained omnipresent. We know he performed many miracles. He was able to read people's minds. He knew what people were thinking. He even was able to travel long distances like instantly. And so his glory, his majesty were, were, were all still there. It was just hidden or encased in human flesh. And that was what was so amazing on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John. And it's as if he peeled back his flesh and let them see the, the kind of the S underneath his suit, right? That he was, he was God, very God. And the voice came from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. One of my favorite preachers is Chuck Swindoll. I know he's a favorite of many of yours as well. And uh, in his commentary on this text, he talks about this emptying himself and 
And this is what he wrote. He said, Jesus voluntarily agreed to be born into this world a totally dependent, helpless baby. Think about that for a moment. The sovereign of the universe, helpless. Deity, umbilically dependent. The divine word, unable to utter one word. The alpha and the omega had to learn how to feed himself, how to put his toys away and clean up his room. The mighty God had to take naps because he got tired. Pretty amazing to think about. Now, again, we have to be very careful in how we explain or understand this phrase, emptied himself, and I think we're given much help here uh, with the following Four phrases that come immediately after. The context is always the most helpful in, in faithfully interpreting a, a passage of Scripture. And I think these, these four phrases that, that follow the emptied himself really give us the best explanation of what it meant that Jesus emptied himself. Notice he says he emptied himself, number one, taking the form of a bondservant. Taking on something, by the way, is, is a term of addition, rather than subtraction. Jesus never surrendered or gave up his deity. He took on something. He took on an additional nature. Paul says he came as a slave whose task was to serve others. We know that Jesus told his disciples when they were bickering amongst themselves about who was the greatest, he said, listen, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And just like a slave, Jesus didn't own anything. He didn't own a home. He didn't own a business. He didn't own a boat. He didn't own a horse. In fact, he had to borrow uh, anything of importance at any of the key moments in his life. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He had to borrow a room to celebrate the Last Supper. And he was even buried in a borrowed tomb. He took the form of a bondservant. Paul also goes on to say that he was made in the likeness of men. He was made in the likeness of men. What an interesting phrase there because in Genesis 1, we are told at the very beginning of Scripture that God made us in his likeness. And here Paul says that God made himself in our likeness. He made himself like us. He became one of us, God with us, Emmanuel. He was born just like us. He Grew up in a family with a mom and dad and brothers and sisters just like us. He learned a, a trade and worked like we do. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He got tired like us. He, he rejoiced at weddings like we do. He, he cried at funerals like we do. I mean, if you had passed by Jesus while he was on this earth, nothing unique would have stood out about him. He looked like every other face in the crowd. He didn't... Uh, walk around with a perpetual halo like we see him painted oftentimes in, in sacred art. Um, he was a man like everyone else, but he was not merely a man. That's the point. He was a real, live human being, but with one exception. He was without sin. And while he took on all the frailties and all the problems that come with living in a sin-cursed body, in a sin-cursed world, well, he never sinned, and yet he was made sin for us on the cross. And so Paul goes on, he was made in the likeness of men, and he was found in appearance as a man. 
he was found in appearance as a man. Again, he looked human. He was, he was just like us, but he was more than us. He was more than human. And while he appeared outwardly to be no different from any other person, he had a divine nature, again, encased in human flesh. He wasn't, he wasn't just half man, half God. He was fully man and fully God. Don't think about that too long. That'll hurt your head. Your mind might blow up. This is what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. Something as mysterious as that has to come up with a fancy, has to have a fancy name, right? It's called the hypostatic union. That it's the belief based on the teaching of Scripture, trying to balance all that the Scripture teaches and be faithful to what appears to be two truths that seem to contradict one another. How could he be fully man? How could he be fully God? You can't be both. How does that all fit? It's, it's called an antinomy. We have to believe it and, and trust it. And, 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 and it's this thing called a hypostatic union that God... Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. He was one person with two natures. And, and really, this mystery of the hypostatic union is really explained to us through another mystery, and that is the mystery of the virgin birth. One of the core tenets of the Christian faith which we find in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced that she would give birth to God's son. Listen to the language that he uses, Luke chapter 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? How is this possible? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. In other words, not the son of Joseph. Well, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he wanted to send her away so as not to uh, disgrace her or himself. And so I believe Gabriel, uh, it says just an angel, but I, probably, I, I believe it was probably Gabriel, came to Joseph and made a similar announcement to him in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, when he had considered this, sending his wife away, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying... Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. See, the virgin birth, while it's a, a mystery that is beyond our, our, our human comprehension, it, it's, it, 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 it's a necessity. It was, it was needed. It was the only way for Jesus to have a heavenly father and an earthly mother. You see, if Jesus had a human father, he would have inherited Adam's sin nature, which means he wouldn't have been a perfect, unblemished sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath against our sin. At the same time, however, he needed to have a human mother in order to qualify as a representative of the human race 
so he could die in our place as our substitute. And so in order to carry out God's plan of salvation, Jesus had to be fully God and fully human. And if he was anything less than that, it would have been impossible for him to save us from our sin. And so we see here in this, these first few verses the, the, the concept of a cradle or the incarnation of Christ. Now, let's look secondly at the cross, the cross or what we know as the crucifixion of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. In verse 8, Paul goes on, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The fact that Jesus became obedient, it says, to death means he had a choice in the matter. He, He didn't have to die. In fact, he would have never died because he never sinned. And the only reason why you and I will die someday is because we sin. And sin has a dying effect, a, a, a killing effect, a deteriorating effect in our lives. And so because he never sins, he would, sinned, he, never, he would have never died. And, and so we have to understand that he chose to die in obedience to the Father's will. And the death that Jesus was willing to die was no ordinary death. He wasn't allowed to just die a natural death or even an accidental death. He, he, he suffered a violent, wrongful execution. And not just, not just any execution. I mean, he wasn't beheaded. He wasn't stoned. He wasn't hanged. But he was executed in the worst way imaginable. And I think that's part of what Paul meant when he says he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We know this as crucifixion, which is perhaps the cruelest, most excruciatingly painful and shameful way to die that has ever been invented by mankind. Originally, it was devised by the ancient Persians and Phoenicians, and it was later perfected by the Romans as a form of capital punishment for slaves and and, and the worst criminals. In fact, crucifixion was considered so disgraceful that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. They were they, 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 they were um, not allowed to be crucified. Um, in fact, the Jews considered anyone who was ever crucified to be under the curse of God. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul was quoting from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 21, but in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, anybody who was crucified was, was considered cursed by God, and they were uh, ultimately excommunicated from God's covenant people. And I think this was... This was, a, this was a real hang-up for Paul originally. Before Paul got saved, before he was regenerated, before he was born again on, on the road to Damascus, uh, th- he couldn't get past this. This was a stumbling block to the Apostle Paul that, that the one who claimed to be the Messiah was crucified. Listen to how one commentator really excellently describes the dilemma in Paul's mind when it came to the cross. He says this, what bothered Paul the most before he was converted was the cross. 
To him, the cross was the most impossible thing about Christianity. What seemed most outrageous to Paul was was that the one who claimed to be God, manifest in the flesh, should die on a cross. The manner of Christ's death is what rendered his claim impossible in Paul's mind. The idea that the man who claimed to be Israel's Messiah should die an accursed death was not just outrageous to Paul, it was blasphemous. What seemed to be most impossible, it's what seemed to be the most impossible thing about Christianity. And yet it became, for Paul, the most impressive thing about Christianity. And you know, after he had that face-in-face encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the cross was no longer a stumbling block, something he tripped over. It's something that he boasted in. It was something that he, he, he boldly preached, that he purposed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, the fact that Jesus was born to die, I believe, is implied in the account of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Have you ever asked yourself why the shepherds, of all the people that God could have announced the birth of his son to, he announced it first to the shepherds. They're in the hills of Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. According to Jewish tradition, those shepherds were not just any shepherds, and they weren't just watching over any, just any sheep. This was a very special flock of sheep. Because of its proximity to Jerusalem, there in the Bethlehem Hills, it was uh, in this region where the sheep were raised to sacrifice in the temple just a few miles away. And it's very likely that these Shepherds were tending lambs that would one day be slaughtered on the altar to atone for the sins of the people. And so how appropriate that they were the first ones to hear the news and and spread the good news of great joy about the birth of the ultimate Lamb of God who would one day sacrifice himself on a cross to atone for the sins of his people. And so we see the cradle the incarnation of Christ. We see the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. And finally, we see the crown, the crown or, or the exaltation of Christ. And this is the, the grand crescendo of this, of this passage in verse 9. Paul says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. God the Father rewarded his faithful son for his humble obedience by exalting him to the highest place possible. Because he was willing to exchange the praise and and glory of heaven for the pain and the grief of earth, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And that's what Paul was attempting to express here when he said, for this reason also God highly exalted him. The only time this word is used in the New Testament is right here, and it literally means super exalted, mega exalted. Like you couldn't get any more exalted than this. And so we know that Christ's exaltation 
involved a, a number of steps, if you will. It, it, first of all, it was the resurrection, him being raised from the dead after his crucifixion. And then 40 days later, it led to the ascension when he returned to heaven, which led to the, his coronation where he was crowned the king, if you will, uh, where he was re- restored to his former glory and, and, uh, and, and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven where he is seated today, serving as our intercessor, our great high priest. We see Paul talk about this exaltation in other places, uh, primarily in the book of Ephesians. This is how he described it to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, talking about the power which was brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. I love what the writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, telling us that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so as we consider this exaltation, we need to understand that the Son not only resumed his former glory with the Father, as he had prayed in John 17, 5, he said, Lord, restore, Father, restore to me the glory that I shared with you uh, before the incarnation, but I think he also received added glory, or maybe a better way to say that is more praise, more honor for triumphing over sin and death. It's not like it made him any more glorious, but he received more praise and more honor because of what he was willing to do. And notice, part of the exaltation here, it says in verse 9, that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now you say, well, There's a lot of names to choose from here. Uh, There's a lot of names that Jesus was given, God's Son was given uh, in Scripture. He's called Emmanuel. He's called Wonderful Counselor. He's called the Prince of Peace. He's called the Almighty God. He's, He's called Ancient of Days. He's called Alpha and Omega. You say, well, doesn't the next verse give us the answer? He bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so the name of Jesus Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus was obviously the name given to God's Son by his parents at his birth. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Uh, Peter said in the book of Acts, Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved by the name of Jesus. And so it might seem natural to assume that this name Jesus, Jesus is the name that is above every name. But I would submit to you that there is evidence to prove otherwise, that it wasn't Jesus. It wasn't the name Jesus that was given to God's Son that was the name above every name. And you say, what are you talking about? Well, you may notice in your Bible in verse 10 
uh, there are some capital letters there, which always is a tip-off that, that uh, it, it's, it's a quote from the Old Testament, and, and that's exactly what Paul was doing here in verses 10 and 11. He was borrowing the words of the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 45, which is where God gave the most direct and forceful statement in the whole Old Testament of his supreme power and authority, his sovereign rule over all things. And if you were to look at Isaiah chapter 45, this, 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 this great statement of God's supremacy climaxes in verses 22 and 23 where God says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And so why was Paul quoting Isaiah 45 verses 22 and 23? I think what he was saying is that God, when he exalted his son, he transferred to Christ the universal homage which he had claimed for himself in the Old Testament. In other words, there's, there's only one name that has ever been given in the history of the world that is greater or above every other name, and it's God's own personal name, the name Yahweh, the great I Am. Which, by the way, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint is translated kurios, which is the word Lord. And so I think the answer to the question, what is this name that was given that is above every name, is not in verse 10, but it's in verse 11, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is who? Is Lord. And Paul wanted to make it clear that, that every knee would bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does it mean to confess? It means to acknowledge something. It means to affirm something. It means to agree with something. And so every tongue will confess, will agree that Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler of the universe and he has the right to rule over us. Everyone, everywhere is subject to Christ's lordship. And that's what Paul was attempting to, to communicate when he said of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That, that pretty much covers it. You, you can't be anywhere else but in one of those three places. And every human being, every rational, intelligent being at any given time in human history, it will either be in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And so this is Paul's way of saying that, that, that everyone in the entire universe will one day acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. The angels and saints in heaven, everyone on earth, and the demons and the damned in hell. Beloved, this is a serious text to consider. And we need to understand that, that I don't think Paul ever intended this, this passage to just be a, a playground for your theologians. 
Because theologians love this passage, and they love to talk about all the details, and what does this mean, and how does this relate? And listen, this was not meant to be a playground for theologians. This was meant to be intensely personal, intensely practical. And the point of this, this passage is that Christ is Lord over your life, whether you admit it or not whether you like it or not, whether you deny it. Listen, you can, you can deny it. You can resist it as, as so many do, but it, it doesn't change the fact that Christ is Lord over your life. Now, I know everybody's not a fan of Donald Trump. That, this whole presidential election thing has divided our country. And there are some in our country who are having a difficult time accepting and submitting to the fact that Donald Trump is the president-elect. In fact, we've, we've heard it said, we've seen signs, not my president. Well, it doesn't matter how much those people don't like it or how much they fight against it or cry about it. Come Inauguration Day, they will have no choice but to accept it and submit to it. And in similar fashion... There will come a day, the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he is crowned the king of the universe and at his return. Those who deny the claims of Christ and have gone through life saying that Jesus is not my Lord, not my president, not my Lord, they will one day be forced to bow their knee to him and confess that he is indeed the Lord, albeit begrudgingly and bitterly because at that point it will be too late. Every soul from every age will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for all eternity in one of two places, either in heaven or in hell. And this includes the likes of Pilate and Nero and Hitler and Stalin and Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden and you fill in the blanks and even Satan himself who has successfully blinded the minds of many so that they cannot see the glory of Christ, that he is the Lord. He himself will have to acknowledge the lordship of Christ over him. And so the answer to the question of where we'll spend eternity acknowledging and confessing the lordship of Christ and worshiping the lordship of Christ is determined by when we admit that, when we submit to Christ's lordship. How much better to do it now, willingly, gladly, committing our life to Christ as our Lord and, and as our Savior in the day of salvation, which is now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for the day of judgment when you'll be forced to acknowledge it. But again, at that point, it won't, won't, won't make any difference to the eternal state of your soul. Your eternity will be already sealed. But if you act today, today, Christmas Day, it will make a difference. And you will be saved from your sin and from death and hell. The Bible is very clear. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus 
as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Which, by the way, will be to the glory of God the Father. Notice how Paul ends this passage. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The purpose of all of this, the cradle, the cross, the crown, is for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see it all kind of come together. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28, when all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. How's that all going to work? I have no clue. But that's what the Bible says, and that's what we believe. You know, I think this concept of a crown is clearly implied in the narrative of the Magi that we read earlier today in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi traveled hundreds of miles to worship who? Or what? What were they looking for? They were looking for a king. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? And they came bearing gifts that were fit for a king. They gave him treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Who were these magi? Where did they come from? Well, they came from the east, it says, which was the land of Persia, which was previously the land of Babylon, and if you remember uh, anything about the Old Testament in Babylon, there was a key figure that lived during the days of the Babylonian Empire. His name was Daniel, and he wrote an amazing prophecy, probably the greatest prophecy in the entire Old Testament about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe his writings, the the book of Daniel, was preserved. The scrolls were preserved in the libraries there in Babylon and then passed on to the Persian Empire. And there was these magi, these these magicians, these magistrates, these satraps, and these these people that, these commissioners that would kind of rule and help the leaders rule. Daniel was one of them, and that's what they did with their time. They studied the ancient writings, and I believe they had the, a copy of Daniel, and so they were studying the, the gospel or the gospel of Daniel. They were studying Daniel, and, and they came across the, the prophecies that were very precise about the coming of this, this great king, like, for example, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, and one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I believe the Magi, that was just probably one of the numerous passages that the Magi were studying, and and, and they came to see the, f- the fulfillment of this coming king. Well, Daniel's prophecy of a coming king who will reign forevermore brings us right back where we started. And it was what so moved Handel as he 
composed his Messiah. And as I said earlier, though, this experience, his experience, uh, while writing this, really what you could call his magnum opus, would not be the last time that someone was so moved by this extraordinary piece. And you, I'm sure, have heard the story that the night that Handel's Messiah premiered in a charity event at the Music Hall of Dublin, King George, King George II of Great Britain was in attendance that evening. And when the first triumphant notes of the Hallelujah Chorus rang out, King George stood immediately to his feet and he remained standing for the rest of the performance. And in those days, the royal protocol required that whenever the king stood, everyone else had to stand. And so the entire audience saw the king stand. They stood up, and not just the audience, the orchestra stood up as they were playing the the instruments. And uh, as you know, that initiated a tradition that has lasted more than two centuries. That's why whenever you go to a a performance of Handel's Messiah, whenever the Hallelujah Chorus comes, what, what do we do? We stand up. Now some... Historians say, well, you know, the king suffered from gout and, you know, he probably was just uncomfortable. He had to stand up at that point just to give some relief to his feet and legs. Seriously, come on. I think that the king himself was following royal protocol. And he knew that he had to stand in the presence of another king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And this was his way of humbly acknowledging that even he, the king of Great Britain, was subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ. What a great example for us this morning that even though Jesus came to earth as a baby, he will one day return to this earth as a king. And that's why all of us should confess his authority over us now and commit our lives to to obey and serve him now, which ultimately brings glory and honor to God, which is why we were born in the first place, to bring honor and glory to God. And we do that ultimately by obeying and serving his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this precious text filled with truth that I trust is sufficient to, Lord, convict those who have yet to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is their Lord. At the same time, Father, I know your word says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have his way in the hearts of men and women and young people and children in this room this morning. What a, what a Christmas day it would be for anyone who would acknowledge their sin and, and, and submit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ as their, not just their Savior, but as their Lord. Father, may you use your word to accomplish your purposes in all of our hearts, we pray for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.